My father is the third born in a family of 12. So as you can imagine, 12 mouths are, are very difficult to feed. So in the second grade, he had to abandon his education to work, to, to start feeding his family. So at the age of 17, um, it was you know decided as a family unit, uh, you need to go to the U.S. and, and start earning dollars. Hi, this is Kimberly from BTR. We spoke to Kristen Leach, a farmer in California, in our first podcast episode. We take a different look into farming as we speak to Eric Becerra, who is currently pursuing a Doctor of Education Leadership at Harvard University. He tells of his childhood growing up in a Mexican migrant farmer family and how every year he has had to move with his family for seasonal work. As an English as a second language learner, he mentions lapses in his education. His story has inspired us to look at our diverse backgrounds and struggles, not as factors that paralyze us, but what gives us strength. We were lucky to speak with Eric and got a deeper understanding of migrant farm workers, why diversity matters in education, and how the education system still has room to grow. Thank you, Eric. And here he is to share the story behind his resume. Hi, this is Hannah from BTR. In his written interview, Eric shared a bit about his doctorate program. We wanted to learn more about it and its focus to learn about how education is being shaped today. I think in general, what the program is designed to do is just just really create education leaders for the next uh, generation. And really, um, one of the first courses that we took was called Practicing Leadership Inside and Out. Uh, the model there is to transform yourself to transform the sector. So uh, it's an amazing program that has really, you know, allowed for a lot of space uh, for introspection and dive into what you view as leadership, right? Because I think oftentimes we view, uh, you know, movies of, of like the Roman Empire, whatnot, and we think of these leaders out in the front doing, you know, all the work and, and being these inspirational, charismatic individuals. Really the true mark of a leader, in my opinion, is how much they could inspire other people to leadership as well, right? So it's not about having all these people behind you. It's having all these people alongside you. So I think the program has really focused on how you do that within the structures um, in the current uh, educational sector, but also has challenged us to reimagine what it should look like because there is the educational um, system that exists today, but that was created by somebody someday for some reason. So there's, you know, there's nothing stopping us from revolutionizing what education looks like. So um, I think that's a pretty abstract uh, answer, but but really what this program has done is really allowed us to connect with our core and our sense of why, our sense of purpose, and, and to, to make sure that we walk in that purpose, regardless of the title that we hold. So whether I go back to counseling or uh, back to the classroom, or I end up being, you know, a, a leader at a community college or at a, at a K-12 school, um, I have to lead through those core values. And I think this program allows us to step aside from the everyday grind and and, and really like hone in on our why. We take a deeper dive into what it means to be a leader. Leadership is about influence. So so if you're not having any influence, uh, then you're really not not leading, right? So I think um, oftentimes being a manager and being a leader get conflated. I think the educational sector is really full of good managers that can set up processes and systems and hierarchies and uh, organizational charts. But uh, if you're not inspiring, uh, you know, others to, to act and, and having influence on, on their behavior and belief systems, we're not really hitting the mark. 
So I guess there's like, there are different types of ways to influence people. There are ways to influence their fear. There are ways to influence right. their power. So what is, is one way you think would be a way to influence others to try to make a change in the education sector? I think at the core of it all is seeing the humanity in everybody that we're working with. So even as leaders, um, we don't have to be infallible, right? Like I, we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be free of mistakes. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest leadership uh, practices that I, that, that I feel um, I have been able to own is precisely that, admitting when we made a mistake, acknowledging when we don't have the answer and calling on those around us to really uh, work collaboratively to, to, to solve problems. So I think it's an, a true mark of it is like, acknowledging the humanity in everybody, empathizing, putting yourself in their shoes, understanding how they're viewing the world, even understanding that there are different ways of viewing the world based on where you sit is a great act of of leadership, compassion, empathy. So I think at the core in education, we're working with people, we're working with human beings and we can't lose sight of that, right? So connecting with with our students at at a human level, building relationships with their families, with communities, I think it sounds so simple, but it can get lost uh, in the everyday hustle and bustle of, of, you know, rules and regulations and laws and, and you know, uh, new initiatives and compliance. Um, but I think at the core that that's, that's kind of where, you know, seeing the human beings for their humanity. Eric grew up in a migrant farmer family. We wanted to learn more about how Eric's family came to the U.S. from Mexico to work as migrant farmers and how that has impacted his education and upbringing. So, uh, I mean, I guess I come from a long history of, of farm workers, even in, in Mexico, where my family is originally from, from a, a small town, Tepatitlan, Jalisco, ranch families, right? So raising cattle. So my grandfather actually came to the U.S. Uh, during the Bracero program. So during the Second World War, there was a shortage of menial labor. So there was a, a, a deal struck between the U.S. and Mexico where men were able to come and work in the fields. Uh, while the labor was needed. And then, you know, when, when that was done, they, they had to return. So my, my grandfather was a bracero. And, and that's kind of how the idea of farm work was planted, right? So my father is the third born in a family of 12. So as you can imagine, 12 mouths are, are very difficult to feed. So in the second grade, he had to abandon his education to work, to, to start feeding his family. So at the age of 17, um, it was, you know, decided as a family unit uh, you need to go to the U.S. and, and start earning dollars, right? Because yeah. dollars go a lot further than pesos do. Um, so that's what he did. And he came to the U.S. and he uh, worked in different areas, eventually landed in the Salinas Valley, um, all doing agricultural work. And uh, that's that's what he's been doing. Again, I mean, just with the second grade education, uh, you know, he struggles to sign his name. So once he once he found a niche and saw that that was something that he was good at and he could uh, kind of flourish, that, that became... That became his career, and it is to this day. He's over, uh, he's over sixty-seven now, but he's still he's still working um, on a daily basis. Yeah, that's kind of how that came to be. But the story isn't unique to my family, right? Like I grew up in Castroville, was like a farm labor camp. Like all of our neighbors uh, worked in agriculture, um, and it was interesting because we kind of had like a market, right, where the people who worked in the strawberry field would bring home strawberries, and people who worked in lettuce would bring home lettuce and trade. Uh-huh. And so we always had produce, um, but the way because it's agriculture, it depends on the on the weather. So there's always an off season um, in the winter when the when the months are cold. Right. Um, you can't really grow crops at that time. So most uh, farm workers pack up and they move somewhere where the season is in full, you know, bloom. It's thriving. 
So whether that be back to, to Mexico or whatever country uh, they, they, they are originally from, um, or Arizona or you know other areas of California, there's a lot of moving uh, involved, which causes gaps in, in our education, right? Because uh, we're not in the same school all year long. So those gaps uh, in the edu- in our education also uh, you know present their own unique challenges on top of learning English as a second language uh, and being low income families, right? But but it's also a beautiful experience, right? There's a lot of community that that is built uh, around farm work families. Right, and I think about my own experience. Like my mom, she found her niche was like working at a nail salon, and that was what she did. And like we, my sister and I were English language learners. So like, I understand that you're just often overlooked. Were you an English language learner when you first entered school? And I guess in with moving, you know, every almost, is it every year? Every year. So, I mean, I, I just, I guess part of it is like, I've always had the support of my family. So it's interesting because sometimes we think about uh, families being engaged in, in, in students' education. We think about them showing up for open house and having teacher parent conferences. My parents couldn't do that. Because their schedule didn't allow, uh, you know, because uh, farm work is 13, 14 hour days, but also because of the language barrier, right? But uh, they were very involved in making sure that I went to school every day, right? That I did my homework, that I was getting good grades. So I would say I just, I had the, the, the support. Um, and it was very clear to, to um, me and my brothers that the lifestyle that my parents led wasn't what they wanted for us, right? It was a sacrifice that they were uh, making to ensure that the future generation didn't have that same lifestyle. So actually, I guess I would, I'll share this. I wasn't really appreciating that sacrifice when I started high school. And uh, they, they decided to have an intervention. That intervention was for me to work in the field myself uh, over the summers. I did it for two summers and it worked. I, I realized very quickly, this is not a lifestyle I want to maintain um, for 45, 50 years like my father has done. So if it were not for that intervention, coupled with my parents' support, and then also my migrant farm, uh, my migrant counselor. So as a migrant student on top of our regular school counselor, I was assigned an additional counselor to really ensure that I had, you know, opportunities to recover credits if I was falling behind and whatnot. Um, so Mr. Cardenas is, is his name, was instrumental, right? And in kind of showing me the, the, the path. So were it not for, for him, I don't think I, I would have gone to college or be anywhere close to, to where I'm at now. And, and I think, I guess I could assert it a little more, you know, a little bit more emphasis because I see uh, the lives that a lot of my peers lead now and they look drastically different to, to, to what my life looks like. There's a little sense of, of survival, survivor's guilt, I guess, to, to name it something, which I think also fuels like my sense of responsibility to do for others what... what uh, Mr. Cardenas did for me. That's why education is so important, right? That's like the way to get out. And I, I guess looking back now, like mention how you saw your peers and they weren't able to get through it as you were. What systems do you wish were in place for them that could have made it easier for them to succeed? I mean, as, as a former uh, high school counselor, I think the caseload, right? Like it's a uh, if, if counselors, if there are more counselors at every school and caseloads were smaller, every student would have the opportunity to have that kind of human touch, that human connection with, with an adult at their schools. That's not currently the case. In fact, there's a lot of states uh, in America that don't require school counselors. They're optional. So starting there, increasing the amount of, uh, of counselors at, at schools. But, but I think going back to the, the humanity, right, when we were talking about leadership, I, I think also... Our school system, our public education system was created during 
you know, the Industrial Revolution, and it was created with a purpose in mind, which was to help individuals fit their role in society. And the role that was seen for people like me was a very specific one, and it was menial labor. I think the more the um, the philosophy or the beliefs or the mindsets of those people who are educating our future generations, if they see the humanity in every every individual student, right, look beyond uh, our, our, this is big for me, right? They, they look beyond our trauma. So I'm very aware that if I tell my life trajectory, I could focus on all the disadvantages and struggles mm-hmm. I've, I've had to overcome, right? Or I could focus on all the resilience and the stuff I've been able to achieve. So, so I think when we look at our students, it's good to be trauma-informed, but not paralyzed by that trauma, right? So we need to be able to see the full potential to challenge students, to, to really uh, strive for something better and, and greater. I think I might be rambling a little bit here, but, but I feel if we as educators embrace the belief that our students have infinite potential and express that belief loud enough for it to become their own, then we start to see different reality. And I think we don't all encounter educators. That, that take that approach. Um, to learn more about what you're saying. So as educators, you say recognizing the trauma, but then not letting them pa- be paralyzed by it. I mean, I, what does that look like? Is it encouraging the student that they can do more or and recognizing what they're going through? I mean, I think it's, it's, something, it's, it's something that I've been struggling with or thinking about for some time now, but I, I feel that oftentimes when we view these struggles that our students have to overcome, it touches our heart, right? And we want, we want to, we want to empathize. We, we, we're rooting for our students, but oftentimes that leads to like lowered expectations or, you know, not, not holding students accountable or excusing a lack of achievement because of all these obstacles they're, they're facing. And I think that's actually as harmful as not believing in them at all. So, so I think it's recognizing each student's individual uh, struggle. But at the same time, elevating the resilience because they're still in school, they're they're still achieving something. So kind of moving away from a, what I like to call a victim story to an empowerment story, right? You, you are going to be successful, not despite all those obstacles and challenges, but precisely because of them. You, you built character, just strength through that. And that strength is what's going to make you successful. I'm so glad we're doing this interview because it actually speaks to our mission and the interviews we've been doing with people, and we noticed that it's a pattern. They talk about their childhood and their, their upbringing, but they also talk about because of it, you know, they were able to succeed. It has given them character and the things you mentioned. And I think that's really important to remember that your upbringing and our diverse path do enable us to succeed. My, my struggles are my superpower. I asked Eric, what counselors at overburdened schools and where there can be more than 1,000 students in one grade, what can these counselors do to help students? It can get so difficult with a caseload of 1,000, right? And, 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 and your primary role as a counselor, a school counselor with a caseload of 1,000 is to make sure that those students graduate. So our, our day can be gone by just reviewing, you know, GPAs and grades and course patterns and scheduling. Um, but, but in reality, you know, that those are all the technical components of the counseling role, the, the, the personal touch, the communication, the relationship, the making our students feel seen is huge, is vital. Um, so, so taking the time to develop those relationships, I think, is key. I, I, I think through my time in education, I, I've grown to develop kind of like my own theory of, of uh, how 
we should in, in, in interact with our students, right? How we create meaningful experiences. And this is something that we're putting into a framework through, through uh, Lotus Strategy Group LLC that, that I, I mentioned. It seems so simple, but, but you know, if we just engage, validate, empower, relate, and inspire every student every day, and, and for me, it's easy to remember because all those, all those terms actually spell every without I at the end instead of Y, so it's a misspelled way. So engage, validate, empower, relate, and inspire, we'll be fine, right? We'll, we'll be fine because that, that centers, again, the human, the student um, as, as an individual, um, not as a cog in a system that's supposed to run smoothly. So, uh, I mean, I guess that would be my, my biggest thing is just uh, ask yourself whether you're, you're intentional about those five elements. Can you share a bit about any projects or work that you're doing that you would like our readers to or listeners to support you in? Like, how can we support you? I'm not big on, on self-promotion. I'm not accustomed to it or good at it in any way. Um, but I guess I will share that, you know, uh, I think in part understanding that our unique experiences grant us knowledge and grant us, uh, uh, you know, perspective that is valuable. It's hard to just own that, right? As a person of color from uh, you know, the, the, the background that I just described, um, to be able to say to myself, I have something to share that could be valuable to others, kind of goes counter to, to that, my cultural value of humility, right? So I think just learning to push past that, to own, uh, in, the, in the words of, of my counselor, uh, Victor Cardenas, to own our greatness and understand that, that there is value um, and what we can bring to the table uh, is important. So for me, the most recent personification of that was the creation of an LLC, Lotus Strategy Group. Lotus stands for Leaders Optimizing Transformative Unlearning Strategies. So I think a lot of what we need to do is precisely that, is unlearn a lot of the, the bad habits and uh, you know beliefs that, that society has implanted in us. Um, and, and I did this in, in collaboration with uh, my closest friends in, in the program, uh, Tim Moriarty and Jamal Williams. All three of us are, are first-generation students. Um, and that's what really brought us together was the, the, that experience of, of having to struggle through an unfamiliar educational system. Despite the fact that I'm, you know, a farm, from farm working family, Mexican descent from Salinas, California. Jamal's from the LA area, African-American gentleman. Tim Moriarty is, is you know, a white gentleman from, from Massachusetts. That unique experience of trying to navigate an unfamiliar education system is what, what brought us together. So, yeah, so, so our, our, our goal is to work with youth-facing professionals to really, um, you know, change mindsets uh, to, to drive change. And, and part of that is just, you know, uh, the way we view our students ha has a huge impact on, on their outcomes that, you know, and then their educational attainment. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. I mean, having that kind of expertise and that group and perspective to help teachers and schools just even change their mindset and the way they approach students and communication with students it's, it's big and it's hard teaching has got to be the most difficult profession that has ever existed it's underpaid it's they're overworked teachers are doing their 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 best um, as we know it right so we're just trying to to create a situation where where we can do better <laughs> and we you know uh, know in different ways eric shares what he would say to his younger self and the advice he would give knowing all that he knows now and why? I can think back to so many opportunities that were that were presented to me that I ignored or or just dismissed because I guess I just wasn't ready to listen. Right? I, I think there's a saying that uh, in Spanish, um, there's a saying that says, you know, uh, 
a fool learn a, a smart person le learns from someone else's mistakes a fool learns only from their own um, and I think I fell into that latter category quite a bit where I just felt like I had to experience it for myself to, to fully grasp the message and the words of, that people were trying to to pass on to me I guess that's what I would tell myself as a, as a child but what I tell myself now is I need to repeat myself because I never know when that person is ready to listen right so there was a day when I was not ready to receive those messages. So I don't assume that in every interaction that I have with, with, with students or adults that they're ready to receive the message at that time. Right. Uh, and it still applies. It still applies to me. So, yeah, I, I guess I would just say, like, you know, when an opportunity presents itself, uh, take advantage of it. And I guess recognizing that it's an opportunity. That would be step one. Yes. Recognizing <laughs> that it's an opportunity. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, yeah.